Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So, Professor Paul Peter Tack, clinician, academic, leader and entrepreneur, is my guest on the podcast today. So Paul Peter's research area is one very close to my own heart, rheumatology, and he's been leading the way for rheumatoid arthritis research for many years now. Paul Peter's career spans both academia and the pharmaceutical industry, working as Chief Immunology Officer for GSK for many years, and has been the recipient of numerous awards, including being named as one of the world's top three rheumatology doctors by Expertscape in 2014. And so with that in mind, I'm very excited to talk to you today, Paul Peter. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I think we should we should get started. Um, and really, my first question for you is, you know, what were you like when you were younger and in school? And did you always know a career in medicine and, and medical sciences was, was the path for you? Uh, not at all, actually. And there's maybe the story of my professional life that there's never been a clear goal. Uh, I've always been on the journey and there are many things that I'm interested in. So I've considered, considered very different things ranging from uh, studying architecture to economics to chemistry uh, and also medicine. Uh, but at some point I came to the conclusion that there was not a very consistent approach uh, to treatment in medicine, which I experienced as a child when I had a serious infection actually. And then I just changed my mind and, and thought, I want to be a doctor. I want to have an impact on patients' lives. Uh, And then during my training in medicine, I got more and more interested actually in philosophy and medical ethics. And during a significant time of my medical study, I even had a job 50% teaching philosophy and uh, and medical ethics. Uh, So I've always been interested in more than my core activity, which was medicine. Um, So that's, that's the beginning of my career. And, you know, when you were in, in school and what is the system like in the Netherlands? Is, you know, in, in Ireland, we would do our kind of final exams at 18 and then based on the marks that you get, you get a place in college. What was it like trying to get into medical school where you're yeah. from? Yeah, so in the Netherlands, it, I think it's very much the continental Europe, European system. So in the Netherlands, we had this national test at 12 years old, which is way too early, I think, but that's what it is. And that, together with the advice from the teachers, determines to which level of secondary school you go. And only the highest level, which in traditional um, uh, schools called the gymnasium, right? So where you learn uh, Latin and Greek, only that level will give you access when you're 18 years old to university. So that's a big hurdle. Uh, I have to say, when I was 12 years old uh, and uh, went to the first year of secondary school, I failed completely. I was not a very successful year. I was not interested in studying. And all my friends also failed. So we had to actually uh, repeat the whole year. All my seven friends were, uh, who had the same problem uh, were separated. So we were all in different classes. We started again. <laughs> and I realized that that was not really what I wanted in life. And um, I actually worked much harder and uh, got really interested. And I could actually achieve at the highest level in terms of grades at the, at the gymnasium. And that was important because the next hurdle was to get into medical school. And at that time, we had in the Netherlands what was called a weighted lottery, right? Because people said, how do you actually know how to select the, the best people to get into medical school? So there was a lottery element. At the same time, probably kind of political compromise. It was influenced by your grades. Mm-hmm. So the higher the grades, uh, the higher the probability of getting into, into medical school. So that's what happened to me. I had a high probability of getting in and I did get in. Um, so I was super happy about that. And so, you know, when you're doing your general medical training, at what point did you realize you wanted to specialize in rheumatology then? Uh, again, very late, actually. I had no intention to become a rheumatologist at all. The major decision that you take, I think, is do you want to be a doctor with a knife 
or without a knife. <laughs> so in other words, do you go into the surgical specialties or into, into internal medicine? I was fascinated by internal medicine. At the time, I was also really interested in psychiatry until I did my clinical rotation and realized at that time, this is now a long time ago, <laughs> that the therapeutic options were quite limited. And I found it a rather depressing uh, uh, rotation for myself uh, because there was so little we could do. So I decided to go into internal medicine and I got uh, selected for um, a residency in internal medicine, which was at the time extremely difficult. I think I was selected out of hundreds of, of candidates, which was really sad. It was a high level of un unemployment at the time in, uh, in, in medicine in general in the Netherlands. But I got in and I wanted to become an internist, which is six years of training after your uh, medical degree. So it's very different from what is called an internist in the US, which is more like a GP. This is a hospital-based specialty. And then things went well, hard work. I learned a lot. I was really interested in having an impact on my patients' lives. I worked day and night. But then at some point when I was at the Leiden University Medical Center, I thought, you know, completely focused on clinical work. Actually, I would like to know more about science and research. And I spoke to my boss, the head of the Department of Internal Medicine, and uh, conveyed this message. And then at some point, there was a, an experimental program in the Netherlands where the problem they wanted to solve was the gap between clinical medicine and basic research. Mm. Uh, so it was a clinical research training program. There were four places in the Netherlands, two in Rotterdam, two uh, in Leiden, uh, two actually in internal medicine, two in surgery. And I was selected for one of these uh, training programs. So I basically extended my training in internal medicine by another two years. I basically interrupted my training. I was only on call during the weekends. But otherwise, uh, I was asked to build a research line focused on the joints, rheumatology, immunology, that needed to be an element of geriatrics. So I built a whole research line as an internist in training focused on tissue analysis. Because as an internist, you always think about, well, there's a problem in the kidney and what are, are we going to see in the kidney biopsy? Or there's a problem in the, in the gut and you do a colonoscopy, for example, and you take biopsies and look at it. That was very uncommon in rheumatology. So I, I basically started this from scratch, just reading old literature, how you could go in with a, what was then called Parker Pearson needle. Parker and Pearson had uh, described this in 1953. <laughs> it was a kind of forgotten knowledge. And uh, I just started to, to try it myself. I, I did everything myself, including how to process tissue samples, the immunohistochemistry, ultimately how to quantify the, the results in the tissues, et cetera, et cetera. And I built a whole research line that became bigger and bigger, more and more students and people joined my, my group. So then I finished my internal medicine. At that time, I had also a technician and, and other people. These are the experiments we need to do today. I went back to the clinic. They did the experiments then. Then I would go back and, and look at the results. But then at the end of, the, uh, of this whole training program, my boss, the head of medicine, internal medicine, said, now I want to make you the head of the intensive care unit. And I said, I built a whole research line in rheumatology. And I don't want to abandon this, right? It's not just to get my PhD and my clinical training program, but it's also about ha having real know-how in the field. In the meantime, I had become an expert in, in, in this field. So I proposed that I would work half-time at internal medicine as a staff member and half-time at the rheumatology department, which was not acceptable to, the, to my boss. So then I said, okay, then I leave. So I was an associate professor of internal medicine at that time and uh, basically walked away and joined the Department of Rheumatology, which was a very innovative department under the leadership of Frederick Breitfeld. We participated uh, there in the first clinical trials with the Kennedy Institute, with TNF blockers. It was an amazing time. It was really the time of a revolution in rheumatology. So although I didn't have a plan initially, uh, but based on the fact that this training program was focused on the joint, I, I got involved in rheumatology and ultimately decided to do an additional three years of training uh, to become a rheumatologist as well and be part of this revolution where people who were in a wheelchair could sometimes walk again. It was like a miracle. This is the, the 90s. God, so like, you know, it would have been the easier option to take on that, you know, head of ICU and go for that. But instead, I suppose, were you 
worried or concerned? Or did you know that this was the path that you wanted to go? You were you were steadfast in that you wanted to be in rheumatology then after your, your training? Yeah, when I became, I think, a specialist in synovial tissue analysis and where we had developed this whole biopsy technique, we had evaluated every step that's relevant for how do you store your samples? How do you wrap them in parafilm? At which temperature? How do you do immunohistochemistry in, in the end, also in automated ways? How do you quantify the cells, including computer-assisted image analysis? We developed all that ourselves. So it would have been crazy to walk away from this. And then I did see, helped by my new boss in rheumatology, to see the big opportunity in how we could change the life of patients, mm. move their signs and symptoms, prevent disability. And I wanted to be part of that revolution and give my little contribution and also learn from it. So I become, became very motivated to focus on rheumatology. However... I've always felt like an internist, and I still do. And that explains, and I guess we'll get there later, why I later, after having really specialized in clinical immunology and rheumatology, also broadened myself at some point again and went back into fields like infectious diseases and oncology. Yeah, so there's a very wide range of, of interests there is what, what, I, what I'm gathering. I suppose this is probably a, a good point to bring in, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and rheumatology. And could you just give me an overview of what that disease looks like for people who may not be aware? So, of course, there are many rheumatological diseases. So rheumatology is really about basically the diseases or the signs and symptoms of the musculoskeletal uh, system not uh, explained by a trauma, right? Which <laughs> is the world of surgeons or the pediatric surgeons. So there are many, many diseases, but the prototypic disease that we have focused on very much is rheumatoid arthritis, which is a chronic inflammatory disease of the joints, uh, which can be very disabling, uh, which it definitely is in most patients if, if they're not treated in a proper way. Uh, this was a really big problem. So when I was in this training program that I just described, and we, we had patients who were admitted to special clinics for like half a year, right? And there was hardly anything we could do but giving NSAIDs for basically painkillers and a little bit of corticosteroids. Uh, and then at some point, surgery. But uh, it was a lot of suffering, actually, right? Uh, now it's very different. Still a big problem and an unmet need. But now it's, all these new medications came, like what we call biologicals, including the TNF blockers that I alluded to but also others like interleukin-6 blockers and um, B-cell depleting therapies, and you can interfere with co-stimulatory pathways. In other words, you can interfere at different checkpoints in the whole cascade that leads to the clinical signs and symptoms of arthritis, like pain and swelling, ultimately leading to disability and have a big impact on patients' lives. And in RA, rheumatoid arthritis, we've seen enormous progress, but the same is true uh, for other conditions in rheumatology, like psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. And talk to me a little bit about the cells that are involved and how the pain and swelling that patients feel, what is actually going on in the joint there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, I've always approached this in a very holistic way. Uh, I remember when I started to work in the field of rheumatology, you had strong T-cell believers and you had strong macrophage believers, and we had the whole debates at the American College, College of Rheumatology meeting, big scientific meeting, where they would say, well, this cell type is the most important. I've always approached it in a more holistic way, I think. At the time that the patient gets the signs and symptoms of arthritis, many cell types are activated. Uh, I think this is very important to realize. It's very important to think about Conditions like rheumatoid arthritis is true for every chronic immune-mediated inflammatory disease in terms of different stages of the disease. So at the moment that the patient walks into your clinic with signs and symptoms of arthritis, then it is already by definition a chronic inflammation. And at that stage, T cells continue to play a role. B cells play a role definitely in autoantibody positive rheumatoid arthritis. So it's a heterogeneous disease. So we need to think about subsets. Macrophages are key drivers of the clinical signs and symptoms, as we have shown based on these biopsy studies again and again. There's a very strong relationship between the number of CD68 positive macrophages, certain biomarker, uh, especially in the synovial sublining, certain area in the inflamed synovial tissue, uh, on the one hand, and scores for disease activity like pain and swelling 
on the other. We've shown this uh, in a cross-sectional study many years ago, but then we've shown this also in experimental studies, where we targeted different pathways in the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis and could show that especially the change in these macrophages is very sensitive to change as a biomarker to demonstrate that there is active uh, treatment versus placebo or ineffective treatment. So that's very important from the pathogenetic point of view. And these macrophage-derived cytokines, so mediators of inflammation produced by these cells, directly contribute to the signs and symptoms like pain and swelling. Um, so that's important to note. It doesn't mean that they're the only cells that are relevant. So I think in the earliest stages of autoantibody-positive um, rheumatoid arthritis, when patients may only have pain, but when the joints are still completely normal, it suggests that pain may actually originate elsewhere, for example, in the spinal cord. Um, at that stage, there's, it's very clear that the interaction between T cells and B cells are, is critical, which means that if you start to think about prevention of the disease, and we might uh, come back to this, that you could actually interfere with these interactions between B and T cells or deplete the B cells or target them in a different way or target the T cells that drive this process. At the, at the moment that the patient has clinical signs and symptoms, macrophages will be activated in the synovial tissue. Typically, that leads to the production of not only cytokines, but also chemokines like interleukin-8. That leads to the migration of neutrophils, another cell type, into the synovial fluid compartment. And they pay, play a key role in actually the formation of fluid and also indirectly promoting pain through the products that they make. So that's what the patient experiences uh, as uh, arthritis, right? And then over time, my hypothesis is that the disease becomes autonomous by progressive changes to another cell type, which are the stromal cells, uh, like the fibroblasts, like synovicides, there are many subsets. And I think the initial process of immunological abnormalities ultimately lead to chronic inflammation, to changes of fibroblast-like synoviocytes, which become autonomous drivers of the disease, even if you take away the original immunological process that started the whole uh, disease. We need to think about this because that may explain that we are not able to cure the, the, uh, the disease at this time, right? We always see the same American College of Rheumatology responses, which are still too limited. So we need to think in a more holistic way about this whole activation of this cascade of different cell types and different cell types are important during different stages of the disease. Yeah. And thank you for that like brilliant overview, because, you know, you've covered a lot of different cell types there, which which is great. And we'll, we'll touch back in on some of them. The first one I suppose I want to discuss is the macrophages, which if anyone who knows me knows they're my favorite cell type. They're what I based my whole PhD thesis on. And it's it's interesting to, to speak to you because anytime I present my work, um, the first introduction slide of why we look at macrophages is quoting your study. Regardless of treatment type, these synovial sublining macrophages decrease um, and potentially could be a biomarker. And I'm just interested in what your thoughts are on the recent data showing that there's different, I suppose, subsets, not only just lining and sublining macrophages, but also that they could be coming from different places, you know, infiltrating versus tissue resident. And what your thoughts are on, I suppose, therapeutic manipulation of those. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great point. So when, when we look back at, the, at our own work, we did very extensive immunohistologic analysis and used uh, regression analysis to find out actually in very well-controlled clinical experiments, which are the key cell types associated with clinical signs and symptoms and found that this overall population is very important and it, um, it's a very consistent finding. And then we went into the biomarker route because actually I used this as a system to predict whether new experimental therapies would work or not. But then the question is, well, which subset, right? Because we need to think about this in a much more sophisticated way. And I think I've moved actually more recently into different directions, as I said, in a, more in oncology in particular. Uh, investigators like yourself built on this uh, and will determine, I think, which are the key subsets to target because you don't want to target all the macrophages because they're so important for the defense again against all kinds of uh, infectious uh, agents. Uh, so that's one. Second, the location within the microarchitecture is uh, important. I think that it must be an important lesson that early after initiation of effective treatment, like 
anti-TNF antibody treatment or high doses of steroids, we see the first changes um, in the synovial supply. So how can we explain that? Well, one explanation could have been that there is induction of cell death. And that's what we initially thought, actually, based on research in the field of gastroenterology, that at least anti-TNF antibodies would induce apoptosis. We did extremely extensive studies there and even took biopsies like one hour after infusion with uh, infliximab, after 24 hours, after 48 hours, <laughs> after 28 days, there was really no evidence of apoptosis induction in the, in the synovium at all. People would always say, well, maybe you missed it, right? Because it's a transient process. But if you have many people running very fast on a football field and you take a picture, you will at least see some people running there, right? So mm. this was extremely unlikely. So it means that you interfere with the dynamics of cell migration in the synovium sublining in particular. And we've also shown that with chemokine receptor blockers, which mainly block cell migration, like uh, if you find the right molecule and achieve the right level of receptor occupancy, you will be able actually to get a very significant decrease in these macrophages in the sublining early after treatment. And we've shown that with two different molecules. So then the question is, do you interfere with retention or do you block the cell migration? And I, I think you need active, signal, uh, active signals to keep the cells in the synovial sublining. So I think actually decreasing retention is an important role, uh, factor in, uh, in this whole mechanism. And indeed, we found that there was an increase after anti-TNF treatment in the number of blood, uh, in the number of lymphatic vessels that take away these uh, synovial sublining macrophages and, and bring them into the lymphatic vessel. So cell egress is very important here. Um, so that raised the, the question, well, if there's a continuous cell egress, there must also be a continuous cell influx right, of macrophages. And therefore, we have actually done an experiment that was not so easy at the time. We isolated monocytes from patients with active rheumatoid arthritis from their blood, labeled them with the a radioactive label, re-injected them into the patients, and we could show indeed that just very briefly after injection, you can find these monocytes already in the, in the joint. And my hypothesis is, based on what I've just said, it's mainly in the sublining. So we need to think about inflammation and in particular the role of the macrophages in the sublining in a dynamic way. So real life is not a picture, but it's a video, it's a movie. And that's how we need to think about this. All these cells go in and out all the time and we can interfere with that process. Yeah, yeah. And that's, it's such a visual way to describe it as well that, you know, it's, often we're only getting snapshots of what we're seeing in the joint. Um, another area which I'm really interested in as well is your preclinical or arthralgia patients. So these patients um, who don't have clinical signs and symptoms, but are at an increased risk of getting RA. So talk to me um, about your studies in the, that cohort. And I know your recent kind of big study on, on rituximab and B-cell depletion. Um, and yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, from the beginning of my research project, when I was still in this clinical research training program and my PhD, I focused on early arthritis already in the early 90s of the previous century right now. I sound really old. <laughs> uh, so we've always focused on early, what we then called early RA. And then I came to the conclusion that what we call early RA, let's say a few months at that time after clinical onset of the disease is really chronic inflammation. But there's still, there's still changes over time. That's why the disease becomes autonomous. And that's why it's still easier to treat patients in what we define clinically as early compared to late stage. That's, that's called the therapeutic window of opportunity. But then I started to realize that there may be something like pre-symptomatic synovial inflammation. And we started to, to obtain biopsies from patients uh, who had both a clinically inflamed knee joint and a clinically uninvolved knee joint in established RA at the same time. It's a kind of model of early inflammation. And we did an arthroscopy from both knee joints on the same day. <laughs> so that was really interesting. And we found actually, indeed, in the clinically uninvolved joints, there is inflammation, although it's less, and in particular, less macrophage infiltration and less expression of macrophage-derived cytokines, which makes sense based on what I just described, because they drive the clinical signs and symptoms like pain and swelling. So, but then we started to do it in a prospective way. And it became clear that many people with autoantibody RA-positive disease, sorry, autoantibody-positive RA, 
already had circulating uh, autoantibodies like rheumatoid factor and anti-citronated protein antibodies years before the onset of the disease. That was actually tested in patients who had been blood donors in the past. And there were still samples in the freezer, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and then it was possible to demonstrate that, let's say, formation of these autoantibodies, in other words, immunological abnormalities may precede the onset of the disease by many years. At the same time, that made it possible to identify people at risk of developing autoantibody-positive RA uh, in a prospective study. And that's what we've done. So we, we've done multiple studies. One big project was called pre-synoviomics. Uh, then we took biopsies from these people. I should not call them patients uh, because they did not have RA yet. But they had autoantibodies by definition. So we selected people who had rheumatoid factor and or anti-citronated protein antibody positive, uh, positive antibodies. And we followed them. And at baseline, we did an MRI. And we took biopsies, which is the gold standard to demonstrate inflammation. And to my surprise, these people did not have inflammation at baseline. Maybe there was a very subtle T-cell infiltration, but not, I mean, it's not really convincing, I think. So baseline is they did have very little inflammation. Often they had oxalgia, which means they had pain in the joints uh, without inflammation, without increased expression of mediators of pain, like prostaglandins, we did all of this. And so the hypothesis that I formulated was that maybe the pain may originate elsewhere uh, at that time, which is also a hypothesis, I think, in osteoarthritis. And that's the story in itself uh, that I got really interested in. Um, I think there is something like immunological memory of pain in the spinal cord, uh, which may actually explain the fact that also patients who underwent joint surgery may still have pain in the joint that has been removed. You say, oh yeah, that's phantom pain. It's just a, a description, it doesn't explain anything. But an, an, an explanation based on preclinical animal experiments suggests that it may actually be related to changes in the spinal cord. I think monocytes and mon- monocyte lineage cells may actually migrate from different sites, including after temporary inflammation in the joint to the spinal cord. So this is something that we need to keep in mind. We may need to think in completely different paradigms about pain. And then over time, when there's established disease, it's clear that local mechanisms contribute contribute to pain big time, obviously. Um, So I started to be interested in this population. We described that they actually did not have overt inflammation. And then we got better at, uh, at the predicting models because we found additional factors that are important. For example, we found in this population that people who were not obese and who had never smoked had actually a relatively small uh, probability, low probability of developing RA compared to people who were uh, with a high body mass index or who had been smokers or both. Then we also found that actually the resting heart rate as a reflection of vagus nerve tone is another independent predictor. And we've shown that in two independent prospective studies, all of this has been published. So we started to think about a model where you have autoantibodies that puts you at risk of developing RA, in our hands about 40 to 50% uh, probability of developing RA within two years. But it's also dependent on factors like body mass index. So if people are really obese, the risk is much higher. Uh, If they have been focused, it's a higher risk. But if they had decreased vagus nerve tone, which takes away the break from the inflammation process, then it's also an, another uh, additional risk factors. So then at some point we thought we may actually do an experiment, right? Do an experimental clinical trial to show if you take out one cell, at least in the blood, that seems to be a key driver of the production of autoantibodies, namely the B cell, maybe we can actually delay the onset of RA. And that's the Prairie study that you alluded to. This was kind of controversial when I proposed this idea to the scientific community. I remember giving talks where I had interactive talks and I asked people to vote at the beginning of my presentation whether they thought it would be ethical to give a biological to people who did not have rheumatoid arthritis yet to prevent it. And many people uh, were against it. I to lay out during the next 45 minutes what the arguments were, were based on our research. And then I asked the question again, and many people have changed their mind. <laughs> <laughs> and now it seems to be acceptable. And what did we find? We did find that if you get a single infusion of rituximab in this population, that's at, at risk of developing RA, actually they have rheumatoid factor, 
and anti-citrinated peptide antibodies, and a little bit of elevation of CRP, which is a measure of inflammation. And they had some pain, but no inflammation, and never had arthritis. That actually we could uh, delay the onset of rheumatoid arthritis by about a year with a single infusion. So this gives very important proof of mechanism that this may be feasible, that with a biological intervention, we may de delay the disease, that we can control it maybe by giving a such an infusion every year. This needs to be tested and proven, right? It's not my recommendation. It's a research uh, question. We could think about more sophisticated approaches to target B cells and or T cells. In these early patients, if we get a better idea about the autoreactive T cells and B cells that really drive the disease. But I think this changes the whole concept from treating at late stages to earlier stages where we have the therapeutic window of opportunity to actually interfering during the preventative window of opportunity. Yeah, because the kind of overall goal here is to treat early to prevent disability um, and and joint destruction. So it's, it's great, you know, that you have these cohorts of people who are willing to be a part of your study. Did you find it hard to get people to sign up and to take this infusion of rituximab? Uh, it was difficult to find the people who fulfilled the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And basically, we had to test about 100 people uh, who had maybe a positive family history for rheumatoid arthritis or some pain, but never had arthritis. Uh, to basically be able to include one patient. So this has been a huge project, actually, that took many years. It was an enormous amount of work uh, and investment that was required. Uh, so it was not easy. But more in general, I think I selected the population in my department of clinical immunology and rheumatology uh, at the Acad Academic Medical Center uh, of the University of Amsterdam that were actually basically partners in research. My patients knew if they came as a new patient, that we would always ask them to be participating in clinical trials and experimental work to advance the science. And I would always say, I will do everything I can to give you the best treatment that's available today. And I feel very passionate about this. But we will, you're in an academic center and we will always ask you to participate in research projects to develop the best therapies of tomorrow. That is what I see as a responsibility, as an ethical responsibility. And that may not be for everybody. So there was kind of self-selection, I guess, right? Because there were many excellent other rheumatology clinics in, in the neighborhood. But actually most people, if you explain what you're doing and you, and you make them part of your team in a way, then they were really willing to help. And that explains that many people were willing to undergo many procedures, including arthroscopies. We introduced the concept of lymph node biopsy in rheumatology. We did that on a, on a large scale. So what I just described in pre-arthritis and the pre-synobiomics product, we also did lymph node biopsies in these people because actually the inflammatory process starts elsewhere outside the joint and we could show that. So they were really willing to do that. And we had regular evenings with these patient volunteers, uh, as you might call them, that we told them about the research that we did, right? And so they really uh, felt very engaged. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, that's kind of similar to what Professor Veal, um, his experience in, in Ireland. Um, talk to me a little bit about your kind of new ventures in gene therapy um, and, and your, your studies there. Yeah, I've had a long lasting interest in um, gene therapy. And when I became a professor of rheumatology in Amsterdam, I started from the beginning a research line on focused on in vivo gene therapy. And the idea was to inject an adeno-associated virus encoding a cytokine that is actually expressed normally in the human body, which is called interferon beta, under the control of an NF-kappa B-inducible promoter. And that means that if the inflammation goes up, what we call in the clinic a flare, that this uh, gene construct, or actually the transduced cells, the infected cells, would become active in producing interferon beta which has anti-inflammatory properties at the site of the inflammation. I know that many people will say, well, type 1 interferons, like in from beta, are pro-inflammatory. It completely depends on the context. It depends on the disease, and it depends on the compartment within the human body. So we've shown again and again, also in many animal models, that interferon beta may have anti-inflammatory properties if expressed at high levels at the site of inflammation. Therefore, we developed this concept of in vivo gene therapy. We started a company around it called Atrogen, 
which had been around for, for more than 10 years. Uh, at some point, I decided to move to the pharmaceutical industry because I wanted to have a bigger impact on patients' lives. If you develop a medicine for a big unmet need, you will have an impact on millions of patients, right? You can never do that as a treating physician on that scale. So at some point I made that decision and I stepped down from my roles at Oxford Unfortunately, in the clinical trial, they decided then to test not rheumatoid arthritis patients, but osteoarthritis patients and the, and the trial failed. Mm-hmm. Osteoarthritis is a completely different disease. There's no rationale to, to use interferon beta there. So it's unfortunate. Uh, I still believe there was a great approach, but very recently, uh, as I mentioned, I started to focus more and more on oncology. Uh, at GSK, I did not only lead immunoinflammation, so everything in the space of autoimmunity, but also infectious diseases, including HIV, but also oncology and rebuild the capabilities uh, focused on cell and gene therapy in oncology, cancer epigenetics, and uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Very recently, I joined a company which is called Candel. C-A-N-D-E-L, so like Kendall, but we say Kandel Therapeutics, which is based in the greater Boston, Boston area in a place called Needham, which is focused on in vivo gene therapy for cancer. And it's a form of immunotherapy. So we induce local cell death in a tumor by injecting this construct into the tumor. And it leads to immunogenic cell death leading to a systemic anti-tumor response, which can also, as we've shown in animal models, have an effect on the distant tumors that you have not injected. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a great uh, approach. This uh, company is actually already in phase two and phase three in multiple forms of cancer, including prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, and glioblastoma. Uh, which is a a very serious form of uh, brain cancer. And we have clinical data already in prostate cancer and in glioblastoma suggesting that there is a positive effect in terms of clinical outcomes like survival in glioblastoma. So this is super exciting. It's very much based on the same principles as what I've done in rheumatology. Uh, This was not my idea. This company has been uh, created by a fantastic uh, investigator. And I've joined the company, built a new executive team, uh, and uh, we will basically launch the company very soon. So uh, have you moved to Boston then? Well, I have lived during the last two years, half time in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, right next to Boston, because I led another company called Kintype Therapeutics, which is focused on the interconnected biology of the gut. Think of the gut microbiome, the gut immune system, and the enteric nervous system. These systems talk to each other. And we have basically mapped the whole gut all the way from the stomach to the distal part of the colon in relationship to a health and disease and started to develop multiple programs for cancer, but also in neurological diseases like Parkinson's disease and also for obesity. The gut is like an, like an organ, right? That's a, the, uh, the gut microbiome is like an organ that plays a key role here. So for that, in that role, I lived half time in Cambridge, Massachusetts and the other half in Cambridge, UK. I always need to say which Cambridge. Um, now, uh, I started in a, a role as CEO of a, of a new company. It's difficult to travel because of the COVID-19 situation. So I've been recruited by this company uh, without having met any of these people uh, in person yet. So all of this is done by, by Zoom. Actually, my first trip to uh, the company where I will meet them in person will be next week. And it was difficult, right? I needed a new visa. I needed an exemption to get into the U.S. because of COVID-19. And it's even difficult to get a flight. There are no direct flights from British Airways anymore from London to Boston. Uh, But I will get there. But most of of the work will be done remotely until the world is a little bit more normal again. Yeah, my God, you don't even think about these things. And talk to me about moving from, you know, academic setting to pharmaceutical industry and what was that like and what have you supposed learned from that experience? Yeah, so you already found out that I'm not very good at predicting my own professional future because I didn't think I was becoming a doctor and I didn't think I was becoming a a rheumatologist and uh, all this has happened. I've also said in public uh, at some point that I would never work for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which was again very wrong. And I really meant it when I said it, obviously. Uh, But there was a wrong idea about the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, And at some point, somebody said, if you really want to have an impact, uh, you you may actually want to join us. And I thought, 
there was a convincing conversation that we had. I joined. There was a long summer after I disclosed that I was going to leave academia, where I was in the center of my field, also as an executive member of the EULAR uh, League Against Rheumatism, the, the European League Against Rheumatism. I was on the annual planning committee of the ACR. I was co-editor for Infectious Rheumatism. I was at the heart of this field. I was a consultant in the last two years before I left to 30 companies. And I think I loved the community and my friends like the fantastic friends that we uh, uh, had in, in Dublin uh, with great collaborations. And then I decided to move to the pharmaceutical industry. I made the announcement uh, actually after the, the session of the executive committee of EULAR, after the EULAR meeting. And then I, it was like a big step in the dark and a long summer because I knew what I left behind, which was a fantastic world. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I have to say the day that I joined GSK, to become first the head of immunoinflammation worldwide was like stepping in a warm bath because the nice thing is that a the science was outstanding people had a common shared goal to improve the lives of patients and to develop great medicines and also to improve the the value of the shareholders right so it's quite different from academia where people can be quite competitive to each other rather than actually being collaborative and having a big impact so also, from an ethical point of view, it's kind of interesting. People start to ask me, how is it uh, on the dark side, right? And I would ask them, well, how is it on your dark side? Because how often do you speak in academia actually about focusing on the patient's lives, right? On transparency, on integrity. I'm not suggesting that one world is better than the other, but we should not underestimate how thoughtful many people are in the pharmaceutical industry and how great the science is and how reproducible, actually, uh, compared to some academic uh, research. So uh, it has been a very positive experience. I learned a lot like about leadership, for example, right? And how to run big organizations. I, in the end, I led a very big organization where we oversaw everything from idea to a molecule to early experimental medicine to late stage development to approval of the medicines and beyond in the context of life cycle management for the key areas of GSK, namely oncology and immunology. So I've learned a lot. And then at some point I thought, well, I've made this big transition and it went quite well, actually, better than I expected. And maybe I can do it again. And then I, made, I decided to move from the big pharmaceutical industry to biotech and uh, started to work as a venture partner for flagship pioneering and as the CEO of Kinta Therapeutics, uh, the company I just alluded to, that's focused on the um, interconnected biology of the gut. Mm. Uh, and again, that's a great experience because now I bring my insights into the science together with my experience in leadership, how to build a team, how to attract and retain the best talent, how to create a very positive culture, actually, right, where people can bring their whole self and be super successful and where we can leverage collective intelligence and ultimately have a big impact on, on patients' lives. Um, so that's what you can do under different circumstances in academia, in pharmaceutical industry, in biotech, in different ways. I like to look at the problem that we try to solve from different angles, and I think it makes me a better leader. And like, you know, there's a lot of skills that you have to have there because obviously you have to have the scientific interest, you have to have the clinic, you know, you have your clinical background, but but like startup and biotech, you kind of need to have a managerial and entrepreneurial uh, side as well. And have you found that challenging or have you risen to those challenges? Uh, I think I, I come from a family where my father in particular was a business leader, always spoke a lot about leadership and management. He was a very progressive, innovative leader. Uh, so I've been indoctrinated as a child, I guess, already. And I think I set up my department in Amsterdam from scratch, actually. This is a very big institute, the AMC, but there was actually no real department of clinical immunology and rheumatology. I built it from scratch when I left we had uh, in total 140 FTEs, including the, the Australian biotech company. And I think in a way I've always organized uh, myself and my organization like a business. So it comes in a natural way. I think that that's probably one of the reasons why I thought the transition from academia to DSK was relatively simple for me. Uh, it doesn't mean that the scale is not completely different in pharma, right? I, I felt like I was in a James Bond movie, right? being in, in meetings with huge screens and you talk to somebody who's in China and somebody else is in the US at the same time. And, uh, and, but it became completely normal because the principles of leadership are the same, but you can always learn. I get energized 
when I'm slightly out of my comfort zone, which explains the changes in my career. Because if everything is going well and I've built a great team, then I think, you know, maybe the team can do it without me. Uh, and that's the best outcome you can imagine, right? To make yourself redundant in a way and move on and try to help others where things are not completely in order or where you can develop uh, things. So I'm always a little bit out of my comfort zone because I need, because I feel I always want to learn new things. So again, now I'm, I'm leading a late stage cancer company, uh, which I've never done before. And uh, the same principles that I've learned in the past are quite useful. Uh, but I'm also learning new things. So I, I, I try to attract the best talent and learn from them. Uh, and in two months' time, I've, I've built an amazing executive team, including a, a chief business officer, a chief regulatory officer, a chief financial officer, a head of experimental medicine and immunology, uh, vice president of corporate development and strategy, etc. And uh, they learn from me, but I also learn a lot from them. So that is part of the trick, right? To always bring in the best people, and make sure that they can be successful. And, you know, off the back of that, what drives your passion? And, you know, you've kind of hinted at it there, but, you know, what, what drives this passion for investigation and for, I suppose, bettering patients' lives? And also, on the opposite side, what do you find the most frustrating or stressful aspect of what you do? Or what do you find the most difficult to deal with? Yeah, great question. So I feel really motivated on um, having an impact on patients' lives. And it's not just hollow words i really mean this right? and but i've also suffered from a condition for a long time which is a very severe form of pain probably the worst pain that's known in medicine which is cluster headache i mean i've suffered from cluster headache for more than 20 years and i can't just describe the suffering of it i really can't uh, it's completely gone i've no idea why but it's completely gone for since 15 years so it's, it's not an issue but i've not forget, forgotten about this if patients share their suffering with me and their pain then i really know what that means on an emotional level and i feel hugely motivated to have an impact on patients lives it's a very deep driver of everything i do so that's one the second i'm really curious and interested in science and i'm very open in picking up new ideas and I'm able to combine them. I think that's part of my scientific strength. I'm quite open-minded. It's a concept that I sometimes call lateral thinking. I like to look just next to where the, 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 the things seem to be, right? And that's where the discoveries are, or at the interface of different fields. So this curios curiosity is a strong driver of my work. I'm somebody who really likes to learn new things and who likes to be a little bit out of the comfort zone. So these factors together explain quite a lot of uh, my career, I think. But there's always been this common theme of being data-driven, doing the right thing, also doing the right thing for people, actually. Uh, and then what's frustrating me, I really hate it if we have come after extensive debate to a decision, and then people start to have second thoughts and they start to circle, and this happens a lot. Uh, certainly in the industry, right, where I've seen examples of slide decks that went around for more than a year and nobody made the decision. At some point, you ne need to make a decision based on all the information that you have. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it. But then you need to stick with it until there are new data, which can be new scientific data. And then you need to be radical. If the idea was wrong, right, or you're testing a molecule with a great rationale but actually doesn't work, then you need to stop it and stop uh, coming with endless uh, explanations why it may still work, unless they are reasonable. Um, so this circling and being indecisive is not great for a leader. And I really find that very frustrating when I see that behavior. <laughs> yeah, very, very fair. Um, and, you know, Paul Peter, one of the kind of final questions I tend to ask everyone who comes on the podcast now is, if you weren't in the position you are today, and, you know, uh, as we can, we've heard in the last, you know, 40, 50 minutes, there's been many facets to your career so far, but in, the, in another parallel universe, what career do you think you might have had? Sometimes I think, uh, but I really don't have the ability, that I would have loved to be an artist. <laughs> and um, I think I can write, and not only scientific literature, so that's what I could do. Uh, I think I can make music, and I'm very interested in music. I can definitely not draw or paint that's really on the level of a, of a toddler, I guess. So I'm a little bit disabled there. Uh, but uh, yeah, you make choices in your life, right? And there are so many things you, you could have done. So sometimes I think when I see a great artist, 
uh, and it's not to, to be famous actually, but just the being so uh, involved in, uh, in a different way of dealing with reality or creating a new reality. That is something that, um, that I would have loved to do as well uh, in, in a parallel universe. It's not possible in this universe for me. Well, you know, uh, thank you so much for, for giving me your time today. And, you know, on a personal note, uh, I'm, I'll uh, tell a little story that, you know, when I was in my fourth year, final year project in UCD, I hadn't started my PhD yet. And uh, I went with Professor Sophia and her group to EWRR, which is a, a meeting, a congress which was in York in 2016. And I had just written up my final year dissertation and everywhere throughout I had referenced TACPP, which is yourself. (laughs) And I remember, you know, at that time I wasn't exposed to the scientific community at all. And we were at a networking event and Ursula said, oh, here's Paul Peter TAC. And I was absolutely in awe. (laughs) I remember I said to you, I'm a big fan of your work, which was the truth. But the rest of the group laughed at me and said (laughs) that it was it was funny that I would have said that, but I was so like obviously innocent and naive at the time, and I thought that was how you how you spoke to people. <laughs> so there you go. Well, that's very nice. It's fantastic when people are inspired and uh, take over the, uh, the work. And I think that there has been a fantastic tradition in Dublin. Right, I've had a fantastic uh, collaboration in the past with uh, Barry Bresty, and who unfortunately passed away. Uh, I still think of him very often. We had fantastic uh, collaboration with Ursula and, and Doug. There's a long tradition of, of, of great research and uh, it's fantastic that you are now taking this over, right? And uh, you are the next generation uh, driving this. Yeah, well, th- well, thank you. And um, yeah, thanks again for, for giving me your time today. Yeah, it was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.